That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Fobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Welcome to another episode of that naturopathic podcast. It's Dr. David Miller Andy here with the somewhat hyper Michelle Pobega. Somewhat. It's like always hyper Dr. Michelle Pobega. She's also schwitzing. Doctor. I am schwitzing. It's a warm day and I don't think we have the air conditioner on because it's been cool lately. But anyways, it's like I'm having hot flashes. Just check out my segue, Dave. <laughs> Damn, that segue is hot. I like it. I yes. Like it. Today we're going to talk about menopause and debunking a few myths. And to talk about that, I've invited Dr. Diana Castleman. She's a naturopathic doctor and she's a proud to be one of the several naturopathic doctors that's qualified by North American Menopause Society as a certified menopause practitioner. That's some, that's pretty awesome. Um, she received her degree in naturopathic medicine from CCNM like Dave and I did in Toronto. And prior to her naturopathic degree, she completed her honors bachelor of science from McMaster University, having a double major in biology and psychology. So we've got some good brains on the show today. Um, Dr. Diana helps women and their families go from feeling burnt out and overwhelmed to feeling calm and energized so that they can do the things that they need to do and show up for their family and their loved ones and themselves. Mm -hmm. So we welcome to the show, Dr. Diana Thank you Kesselman. so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you too. Um, can I ask you, how did you fall into working in like the mm -hmm. women's health sector? Okay. Well, that being said, a lot of naturopaths go into the women's health sector, but mm -hmm. why menopause specifically? Like what drew that, what drew you to that niche in the female health area? Yeah. So around the time that I was graduating CCNM, I actually had no idea I was going to be focusing in menopause care, but it was around the time that actually my mom uh, was transitioning and going through her uh, menopause transition. And I think that just really fueled a fire in me, not to say that she had um, a really negative experience with her doctor. It was just the fact that there was actually just a lack of conversation, right? There was a lack of conversation about her cardiovascular health and her symptoms and her bone health and her brain health. And um, obviously, like, I love my mom. She's one of my best friends. And so I just really, it just fueled this fire in me to why are women not having these conversations? And it's actually really what drew me to uh, the North American Menopause Society and being uh, trained further in it. And I don't know how you guys felt when you graduated CCNM, but I definitely felt this way. I didn't feel very well equipped to support women through the menopause transition into postmenopause. And I know graduates of medical school feel that way too, right? I mean, you're sort of jack of all trades, master of none, so to speak, especially if you have like a family style practice. Um, 
And I, I didn't feel very well equipped. Again, you kind of know the, the basics, so to speak, but I really wanted to dive into it. And so luckily also there's, I had mentors in the field who had been working with these women for decades and I also had their guidance as well. I agree. I don't think I was properly, I don't think that would have been something I would have felt confident. Yes, that's what I mean. I didn't feel confident. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I can say I didn't feel confident related to a lack of competence uh, in that field too. And I think it's probably hard to be competent, which is why it's pretty cool that you've uh, done that extra training. I think Michelle, you said several, uh, and these are in, have done it, but I, Diana, there's, it's kind of a select group, right? There's not that many, is it? Uh, yeah. So it used to be a lot more rare. I would say there's definitely been um, certain doctors in our field who have been really advocating for more of us doing it. So I think there's definitely more now. Like I want to say there's over 20 of us now. Okay, cool. That have okay. done their NAM certification um, off the top of my head. Um, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's over 20 now. So it's quite great that we have more practitioners that are actually being trained in it for sure. Well, I, I think it's also because women are starting to, I think, learn to advocate more for support mm-hmm. in that area. So I think there is a growing interest in alternative options for women rather than just the, oh, that's just your level of normal, which I feel like a lot of women get for a lot of women health issues in general. Yes. Like, oh, your period cramps are your level of normal. Your hot flashes are your normal. Your this yes. is your normal. And they're not given a lot of understanding that that that's not normal just because it's common and here are the mm-hmm. things that are right but i think there are more women looking for that that alternative opinion or that different perspective yeah. and that different level of support and i think women are more actively vocal about it so i'm glad yeah. that there's a growing niche of people mm-hmm. who are there to support that mm-hmm. i agree with you i think Again, a lot of the women that land in my office, they often get told and i think this is a very common message is well, this is just aging right you're, mm-hmm. you're aging, like yeah. you're going to get through it. You're going to get through your symptoms. But that's literally what every single one of my patients gets told. And they land in my office because they don't feel heard. They, they don't want to just say, leave it at that. Right. But you know what? Some women, probably there's a, many women out there that do, they're kind mm-hmm. of like, okay, yep, this is aging. I guess I'll just get through it. So whether they have vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse, severe hot flash nisos, they can't sleep at night. They're kind of like, well, I'll get through it. And we'll talk about that today. But that perimenopause period, that menopause transition, some women can be there for up to 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. So that's literally could be 10 years of your life that you are suffering through it and just waiting for that time where the symptoms are gone, right? I think part of is, I mean, part of why I I think I felt incompetent or a lack of competence, uh, which may have contributed to a lack of interest in it, is that I think around the time we would have graduated, Michelle, the predominant sort of evaluation of the Women's Health Initiative would have been uh, at its uh, earlier sort of iteration, right, where they they sort of pulled the they pulled the plug. Uh, and Diana, you can go into this in mm-hmm. way more detail, but I'm just casually bringing it up uh, because I think that's part of why it was confusing when we got out because it was like, well, there was, because I worked at, I, I was a pharmacy tech, you know, when I was in university in the summer with like a, a great pharmacist, he was so great. But back then it was, I think it was late nineties. That's how old I am. Um, or like 2000. And we were, there was a lot of uh, horse pee, Premarin. Uh, yeah, being primer. prescribed mm-hmm. and uh that was that was sort of before i think uh 
chronologically you get into the women's health initiative and mm-hmm. um, there's a there was like a, a pull on the on the plug of HRT a little bit do you want to is that a good little yeah, transition for you to get into that yeah let's let's definitely start there so yeah actually the first estrogen pill which is Premarin and it's um, conjugated equine estrogen which is a synthetic estrogen uh, that was actually introduced in 1942 wow um, yeah and so you know, before we actually started using hormone therapy in women, there was a bunch of other therapies that, you know, women were using or were used on these poor women, I will say, Mm. like things like electric shock therapy, right? Like that's what was being used to treat these symptoms. Um, So we had actually heard a surge of hormone therapy in the 60s, in 1966. And it was promoted um, to women as being like, Basically, you're going to have a full sex life for the rest of your life. And that's really how it was promoted. Um, And in the 1960s and 1970s, a lot of the marketing was actually geared towards men. So a lot of the like posters they would have would say he is suffering from estrogen deficiency and she is the reason why. Um, And it would be like and then um, and when a woman is put on Premarin, she is pleasant to live with once again. So the hormone therapy marketing was actually geared towards men. And then by the 1980s and 1990s, we actually had quite a number of large scale, uh, large scale observational studies that were showing about a 40 to 50% reduction in developing heart disease, right? So this is actually one of the main that's wild. Yeah, this is one of the main reasons that actually drove the Women's Health Initiative, they wanted to now take these observational studies and create a randomized controlled trial around it, right? So they actually had great intentions going into it. So the Women's Health Initiative, for those who don't know, was a series of clinical trials that was put out by the NIH, uh, the National Institute of Health, and it started in 1991. It's huge, right? Yeah, massive. So over 160,000 postmenopausal women were were enrolled. To this day, I think it's still one of the largest randomized control trials ever done. Incredible. Yeah, we still have uh, data like 20 year follow up data, which is which is crazy. We actually learned a lot from it. Um, and really the goal of the Women's Health Initiative was to address the major cause um, of morbidity and mortality in postmenopausal women. And again, they were actually focusing on that cardiovascular disease piece. So one of the arms of the trial was the hormone therapy trial, and that was actually stopped 3.3 years early. So after about five years of follow-up. And it was actually supposed to go on for eight years originally. So it was stopped at that five-year mark. And the problem and why it was stopped early was because they actually saw there was an increased risk of cardiovascular disease Mm. in these women. And risk after risk kept showing up, like stroke, heart attack, those kinds of things. And so Mm. obviously, they stopped it early because, again, they were trying to use it for prevention. Now... I just want, Diana, I just want to interject quickly. It was cardiovascular. I just want to make sure that was, I'm hearing you right. It was cardiovascular disease that was actually, okay. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's that's that's, surprising to me. To me, I was, this is is really interesting. This history lesson, I'm enjoying it. It is. Well, I thought Uh, it was hormone dependent cancer risk. So I'm, I'm learning. Breast cancer was another risk, but that's like, I'll I'll talk about that as well. But the reason this particular trial was stopped early was because of cardiovascular disease. Okay. So, like, as I mentioned, it wasn't a bad study. It was really the fallout, right? Because again, what you saw in the news, it was in 2002. And there's still fear today, right, from both clinicians and patients. And it said HRT causes breast cancer, right? And 
um, all, all other types of cardiovascular disease too. I mean, it was everywhere. And so obviously that scared a lot of people. That was the time that every single doctor picked up the phone, called their patients and said, get off hormones, right? It was, it was obviously very traumatizing for so many people. Um, we learned a lot from that study and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. What did we actually take away? One of the biggest things we took from that study was actually a thing, what's called window of opportunity. So basically, the average age of women in the Women's Health Initiative was 63 years of age. Okay, so they were, um, a lot of these women were like 10 years past their menopause date, right? So menopause is actually the date, right, where you've had 12 months without a cycle, everything after it's considered post-menopause. So the average age was 63. And what we learned was that if you are less than 60 years of age or within 10 years of your menopause date, the benefit can actually outweigh the risk for hormone therapy. So again, starting it much later is not indicated. So, you know, if I had a woman sitting in my office and she's 62 and maybe she went, uh, had her menopause date at 51, it's definitely something that I would not feel comfortable prescribing because of the data that we have from the Women's Health Initiative. And like all menopause experts and any woman who who prescribes hormone therapy, like knows that that's like kind of the golden rule um, that we use for cardiovascular prevention. And kind of what we we think is behind that is basically with your blood vessels after you've had a period of time of not being exposed to estrogen, introducing estrogen at a much later stage can actually confer more risk. So it's sort of like the blood vessels are not as like fluid and elastic, so to speak, right? They they really, you know, stiffened up. That's kind of how I explain it to my patients. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to introduce it after that time. Um, too much of a pressure on the system at that point. Exactly. Got exactly. It. So that's one of the biggest things that we learned uh, from the Women's Health Initiative. The other thing um, with way the way that the information was um, came out was that they were generalizing the findings to age women of all ages, right? So it didn't matter if you were 51 or 52 or 63, they were saying all women shouldn't take it, right? And, and again, when we took that data and we actually looked at women who were recently menopausal, then that's when we saw there actually was more benefit than risk to those women. So that's, again, a big thing. Also, a lot of the women were not only 10 years post-menopause, they were also had high um, blood pressure, smokers, overweight. We know obviously those are risk factors for cardiovascular disease as well. Um, So that was part of um, the findings as well. The other problem that I think was quite big was they really talked about relative risk versus absolute risk. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have to get into a whole science um, lecture on that. I'm sure you both are very familiar with that. But when we're talking about relative risk reductions, they tend to be quite big, right? They, they can be misleading. They can over-exaggerate a finding. They weren't talking about absolute risk reduction. So when we say, you know, 29% increased risk of cardiovascular disease, 41% increased risk of stroke, that is scary, right? Yeah. Like that is really scary when you hear those numbers. And so that's how they were conveying the information to media. And that's just something that I also point out to my patients. We also have to talk about an absolute risk, which is, you know, what is that risk? For example, for breast cancer, we know it's like one in a thousand women, right? Like that typically makes a lot more sense for for my patients as opposed to saying, okay, you're at 41% increased risk of stroke, right? Again, menopause hormone therapy, and, and we can dive more into this. It's so, so, so individualized, right? So it is not something that 
Um, and, and I've seen online, right? There's some menopause experts who are like, every woman should be on it. And, and, and I really don't think that that's the case. I think this is something that really warrants that discussion to say, what is your personal history? What is your family history? I do a full screening um, in my office. It takes me an hour, right, in my office to see if patients are a good candidate for menopause hormone therapy. So it's not something that, okay, you're... 50, you're within, you know, menopause date, let's go on hormone therapy, we need to have that discussion. And so that's why I also think naturopathic doctors are in such a great position to be leaders in this area, because we have the time with our patients, right? Mm -hmm. It is extremely difficult to have an informed consent conversation about hormone therapy in a seven minute appointment. It's just, I actually think it's impossible, you know, to actually for the patient to really know their benefit and their risk. Um, Because I'm never going to be the one to say, there's no risk of breast cancer or whatever the case is, right? We need to just put it into perspective for that patient's individual um, personal history and and everything that we take into account there. I'm not very familiar with hormone replacement therapy because I never went down that route. Mm-hmm. So you were saying it takes you a good hour just to screen the clients to see if they're good candidates. Yeah. Are you willing or can you share maybe a few things that would, I don't want to say disqualify, but you might rule yeah. out someone from being eligible for hormone other than age? Yes. So some absolute contraindications would be like if they had a previous cardiac event, right? So whether they had a stroke or some other sort of cardiac event, that would be uh, an absolute contraindication. Now, there, you know, there's a difference. Was it like a provoked, unprovoked event, that sort of thing? You can get into the nitty gritty of that, but that's typically an absolute contraindication where we are more careful for sure is if they have increased triglycerides, right? Um, or have high cholesterol, like we need to look into that as to why, right? Because that is going to affect the way that they process um, hormones. Some of my patients, if, especially if they tell me they've had a history of migraines, migraines with aura as well, that is something that we also want to be mindful of because hormone therapy could potentially make it worse. Um, so those are some things, obviously, if they've had a also a history of endometrial cancer or any sort of breast cancer, personal history, we're not going to um, initiate it. Um, I'm just trying to think if they have any sort of um, clotting disorder, that's something we also want to look into as well. If they're on any uh, blood thinners, we just, we need to be more careful there. So those are just some examples, again, taking in their history of what we want to screen for. I always get my patients to make sure they have updated blood work, Uh, But when I say blood work, I'm talking about their cholesterol, their blood sugar, their liver enzymes. It's actually not, I don't necessarily need to know what your estrogen levels are. That's not how we're prescribing hormone therapy. We prescribe hormone therapy because of your symptoms, not because of your, what your estrogen value is on lab work. Can you repeat that? I think it's important to repeat that. Yeah. So we prescribe hormone therapy based on what someone's symptoms are and how they're presenting, not what their number is on lab work. For example, um, there actually a common myth is that you have to wait until you're postmenopausal to initiate hormone therapy, but that's not true. You can initiate in the perimenopause state. And often for most women, that perimenopause stage, the, the years leading up to their menopause date are some of the most symptomatic, right? Yeah. Like that's when they have a lot of their hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, whatever they're experiencing, because their body is responding to the fluctuations of these hormones, right? One month, you're going to have high estrogen, then you have low estrogen, like your hormones are constantly fluctuating. So for us to run that lab work doesn't actually give me good information, because Mm -hmm. 
one month, like it's just a snapshot in time, right? So you go to the lab at that day on that month, let's say you have high estrogen, but the next month it could be low again, right? So I'm not using that as a guide. Um, I'm doing the blood work to also rule out anything else that could be going on. So for example, um, hypothyroidism and underactive thyroid, those symptoms can present a lot like perimenopause, right? So I want to make sure that I've ruled out thyroid conditions or any other conditions that could present um, like perimenopause. And if that all looks normal, it probably, they probably are perimenopausal symptoms. And that often will happen to a lot of my patients. A big one is palpitations or palpitations. So they, you know, get their Holter monitor done, their um, ECG, like they get all this testing done. It all comes back normal. And their doctor's like, yep, well, we don't know why, why you're having these palpitations, probably anxiety. Um, and in a lot of these cases, like heart palpitations is a very real perimenopausal symptom. That's interesting. I wouldn't have actually thought about that. Yeah. But I don't see a lot of menopause or perimenopause. So that's probably why. Yeah. It's not like <laughs> top of mind for you. That's not, it's not on the top yeah. of the list for me. No, but no, it's, it's interesting it's, good to know. Then I can start screening people better to refer them to the right place. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually, I find it, um, sort of comforting, you know, or, or reliable in terms of referring to people like you, Diana, or I've, I've referred to a lot to Dr. Kara and Jordan Robertson and and lots of other, um, you know, savvy NDs in, in that zone. But it's one of the things I'm asking is so bloody simple in terms of like, um, assessment, or at least it's a high probability of getting a good assessment is did things start to go a little awry around perimenopause? Like, it's 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 pretty easy to refer from i find it pretty easy to refer out like if no matter who i'm seeing because you have to ask your timeline questions like when did everything start to go you know from you know you're good enough you wouldn't be coming to see me to okay something started to shift around this time oh i was like you know 49 years old and i started to get hot flashes and i started to not sleep through the night and i got you know my bone scan came back you know it's like well it's kind of an easy, uh, it's a, it's a high yield thing to figure out if, if, if it all happened around that time, you need mm-hmm. to see someone like you or someone, someone else trained in this zone. Does that, does that make sense to you? It's a pretty easy assessment, at least to like, uh, rule out. I would say you'd be surprised how many patients in my office might only come see me after the fact, right? Because right. the doctor told them, you know, it's whether it was perimenopause or not, that there wasn't anything else to do, right? So whether they picked up on that or not, a lot of patients are not getting support for this a lot. Mm. Um, yeah. But, and for us, it might seem, especially for me, obviously, because I work with so many of these patients, um, I can see it right away, right? Like if if I think that is something or even their mood, like if I think their mood is related in their 40s to potential perimenopause changes. Because the thing is, is a lot of women will also attribute a lot of the um, the, the way they're feeling to their external environment, right? Well, if kids, life is crazy. Like, you know, I work full time. I have this going on, you know, my husband, like whatever the situation is, we actually, as women, I think attribute always a lot of our, the way we're feeling to our external circumstances. And I actually had a woman in my office this week Uh, one of her main perimenopausal symptoms was mood and actually depressive symptoms. And we know that that can definitely be something that 
women are impacted by. Um, and we do have some research to show that if they initiated menopause hormone therapy around the time of like um, that menopause date, again, earlier on, there is good data. Post-menopause, we don't have good data. So if they initiated around the perimenopause time, it can help. And so when she had come to see me, but she was also like, I don't know. I don't really know if it is perimenopause. You know, I think it's just maybe life. And so I said, okay, like that, that's fair. Like, why don't we do a trial, right? Like, let's do a trial. Let's see how you do. She was a good candidate. Uh, I'm like, she had tried other things that didn't work. And I'm like, let's just do a trial. Let's see how it is. She said, okay. And then we had our three month follow-up and she was a new person. She was like, you have no idea. I haven't had one, not one depressive episode since we last spoke, like since I started this and like, that's how, you know, right. So I always say to my patients, even when we um, initiate something like hormone therapy, I'm like, it's a trial. Like, let's see, right. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. every single woman is going to respond. And there definitely are women who are hormone sensitive. And that's how I position it. Like not every woman can be on it. And if you do not respond well to it, there is nothing wrong with you. It's not like there's something wrong with you and your body. Um, A lot of actually that is genetically linked and that's what we have research to support. So it's not like it's a bad thing. If you don't respond, we just see, we give it a go. Some women do really, really well on it. And I think it's just one tool of many tools that we can use, right? It's not like it's the only thing we can use, but for honestly, a lot of my patients, it can be life-changing. No, it sounds like it. How long would how long would someone have to be on hormonal therapy? Like, is there usually like a duration? Is it like a weaning off after symptoms? Like, like, I'm not sure how, like how you gauge coming off of that if it's no longer necessary. This is where like the individualized, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. The art of medicine comes in. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, it really depends what we are using it for and what we're, we're achieving. And again, I think what it comes back down to is you always have to reevaluate the benefit versus the risk yearly. Like I always do that with my patients, right? So I do a cardiovascular risk assessment, um, breast cancer risk assessment. Like we actually have validated calculators that we can use. We're always reassessing. Has anything changed in their health history Mm. right now? If we're using something, let's say I'm using like a transdermal estrogen um, and an oral progesterone, that combination and therapy, uh, like I'm talking about bioidentical hormones here, we have good research to suggest that within the first five years of use, if you are, again, a good candidate and you're using it around the menopause years, there doesn't seem to be an increased risk in things like breast cancer or things Mm -hmm. like that, if they are a good candidate. So that's something that I'm positioning to my patient. Again, that doesn't go for everyone, but typically I would say that is sort of what we are seeing. Now, some women will be on it for 10 years and that's fine too. I'm not saying that's not. Um, We just need to keep making sure they are a good candidate. And I would say once women reach the age of 60, we're having a very serious conversation about what that looks like going forward because they need to be very aware of what that risk is if they do continue because there is a risk. Okay, good to know. Yeah, yeah. Diana, is there any sort of uh, big differences between uh, bioidentical and not bioidentical HRT? It's a great question. So I will give a specific example. They have looked at the research between something like um, synthetic uh, progestin, which is Provera. That's the brand name, which is medroxyprogesterone acetate, MPA. That was the progestin that was used in the Women's Health Initiative. So they were giving 
that synthetic progestin with the oral estrogen, which is also synthetic. The latest data that we have shows that the bioidentical version, which is called Prometrium, does have better safety data for the breast mm. versus the synthetic. Um, so it seems to be more breast safe. And that's the other thing. A lot of people think it's the estrogen component that increases the risk for breast, but it's actually the progesterone component. Mm. So so when we have women on, like in the Women's Health Initiative, women who were on the oral estrogen and progesterone together had a higher increased risk of breast cancer than women who um, were just on the estrogen alone. And you were on the estrogen alone if you didn't have a uterus. So if you had a hysterectomy, you didn't need to be on the progesterone. That's how you need to be on a progesterone if you have a uterus because it protects the uterine lining, prevents it from growing because that could lead to um, endometrial cancer. So mm -hmm. It's actually the progesterone component that typically tends to be more, um, have more activity in the breast. So that's an example where we do have some research distinguishing that. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, I think there is a difference in them. Even we know transdermal estrogen. So if they were using, um, transdermal estrogen, which there are Health Canada and FDA approved products that are bioidentical. That's the other thing that is sort of a misconception that if it is bioidentical, it has to be compounded through a pharmacy. And that's not true. We have, Health Canada approved products that are bioidentical. That's just the estradiol, right? That, that main estrogen. Um, if we do something like a transdermal estrogen, that can actually be safer in terms of cardiovascular risk than doing an oral estrogen. So it's, you know, safer in terms of outcomes that we have for like stroke, cholesterol. It doesn't increase cholesterol as much, those kinds of things. But the transdermal ones, they still have a systemic influence too. Or do they work just in the area that they're applied? No, it's systemic. So menopause hormone therapy is systemic, right? So when we're talking about a transdermal estrogen and like a oral progesterone, that's systemic. That's what treats, you know, the symptoms that women are going through. When I we're talking about um, vaginal support, like vaginal estrogen for, let's say, vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse, you know, prevention of chronic urinary tract infections, that's not systemic. Okay, so there's little to no systemic absorption with vaginal estrogen. So that's, I would say that's not considered menopause hormone therapy. That's that we use for uh, those specific symptoms. Okay. And where yeah. do, where do herbs, where do herbs fit in with HRT? Yeah. Are they supportive? Are they instead of, are they, uh, you know, you know, are they even used with HRT? Yeah. Um, so it depends what we're talking about when we're talking about like, let's say hot flashes and night sweats. Cause that's something that women, a lot of women experience. We know that estrogen is the gold standard therapy, right? Like, I mean, and I say to my patients, like, even when it comes to herbs, like I have nothing <laughs> that competes as well as, as menopause hormone therapy in terms of like the eradication of them and, and women feeling better. Mm -hmm. That being said, right. If a woman is not a good candidate for hormone therapy, obviously we're not going to use that as a, as, as a tool. And so in that case, I will turn to herbs for sure. Um, and, and dietary things, right. There's, there's things that have some research there, which we will use. Um, I will say the herb research is not where I would like it to be. I hope that it does um, get better in terms of supporting these women, even things like black cohosh, unfortunately, just do not have the research that that we we want to see and even a lot of women who end up in my office to honestly typically have already taken these things right like they've tried an over-the-counter 
supplement. You know, there's a lot of, you know, menopause relief supplements and things like that, that, that women can try. I will say the one herb that I have um, seen evidence with, with my patients and, and there is some evidence to support is actually sage. So Mm -hmm. salvia officinalis does have research for hot flashes and night sweats. So again, I will use that in some of my patients who um, are, you know, not good candidates, but I wouldn't do like hormone therapy and let's say sage together, because at this end of the day, they're sort of treating the same thing, right? So if if a woman's on hormone therapy, then that's the main sort of thing that we're going to use for her symptoms. But there isn't a contraindication with using herbs for other issues, like using adaptogens with hormone therapy. Like, can you still combine things like in that sense? You can. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. Good to know. So we, I know a lot of women will probably associate perimenopause with the hot flashes, the night sweats. Yeah. That tends to be like a very good gold standard that people are like, okay, I think something's transitioning in my life. Yes. And then you did bring up heart palpitations and you also, re- and you also brought up that depression can also be a, yeah. sometimes a missed symptom. Are there other, uh, yeah. maybe less obvious symptoms that, that our audience could be aware of that maybe they're in the parent, they're approaching or in the perimenopausal mm-hmm. stage of their, of their life? Yeah, it's a great question for sure. So dizziness um, is another one. Tremors. Some of my mm-hmm. patients, like literally one of their only symptoms will be tremors. Um, and again, of course, it's important to rule out that it's not right. caused by anything else, of course, but that can definitely be a symptom. Um, forgetfulness, brain fog is, is a big one for a lot of my patients. Mood swings. Um, sometimes there's that tactile sensation. So it's like a feeling of like bugs crawling on your skin. Mm-hmm. That's another perimenopause symptom that some of my patients are not aware of. I think I mentioned insomnia. So like waking up at night, sleep disturbance, even if it's not necessarily related to having night sweat. So it's not like they're waking up because they're really hot, but it could just be difficulty sleeping at night. Um, yeah. Like feeling restless, really tired, heart racing. Those, those are some other symptoms. Interesting. Breast tenderness. Yeah, I love I love the insomnia one. I, I, that's a, that's a big one. Like uh, for me, if I see a woman who's around perimenopausal age and she used to be an okay sleeper and now she doesn't. And that's important because if you can't, if you can't get someone to sleep properly, that you're compromising all. Yeah. Like all rejuvenative, regenerative capacity of sleep. And if it's simply, I don't want to say simply, but if this is a, yeah, and I didn't mean to say that it's a it's a simple thing to handle. I hope I didn't come across that way. It just it's a it's a to a clinician. I think it's a, something you really have to have at the forefront of your mind when someone's around mm-hmm. these age, this biological yeah. sex, and uh, you know these sort of constellation of symptoms. Uh, one of them being insomnia and mood stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to think about it. And the other thing is, perimenopause can actually start in women in their late thirties. Right. So that's the other thing that really throws a lot of my patients off is um, they didn't know it could have started that early. Or let's say their family members, you know, didn't sort of reach that menopause date until like they were 55. They are not necessarily coiling being 40 and maybe having perimenopausal symptoms. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's something to really pay attention to. The actual definition of perimenopause is when your cycle starts to change plus or minus seven days. So if you used to have, you know, 28 day cycle, now it's like 21 or it's 40 days. But the thing is, is that you can start to experience these symptoms before you see those cycle changes. Typically, by the time you see those cycle changes, that's when symptoms are in full, full, uh, 
you know, full expression for a lot of my patients. But even before then, you can have symptoms before you actually see a change in your cycle. Mm. Awesome. I'm loving this. What are, I feel like it's really refreshing my brain about all the things and keeping my eye for stuff again. That's what I love about this podcast. It's so fantastic. Yeah. Continuing <laughs> education. Um, it is. What What are the other most common sort of, let's say, myths or things that um, mm. women either come in thinking like, oh, this is, uh, you know, just, just myths that, or, or hesitations that you find with some of your, uh, your first visit with patients? Mm-hmm. I think that's great. So I'll, I'll kind of tie some of the myths back to hormone therapy, because I think there's a lot there. Um, one of the myths is that hormone therapy is only beneficial for severe symptoms. Um, and again, how do we classify severe symptoms, right? Because what I always say to my patients is you are the one experiencing this, your clinician or no one else is experiencing this. So you also have to define what that means for you. Is it affecting your quality of life, right? But it's not necessarily just for the relief of, let's say, vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes, night sweats. For some of my patients, they could be at increased risk for osteoporosis, right? Mm. And we know that estrogen um, is actually a Health Canada approved therapy for prevention of osteoporosis. It works really well for that. So let's say I have a patient, we know patients who have celiac disease, for example, are at increased risk of osteoporosis. Maybe if they've been on certain medications that put them at increased risk, right? So that's why that history is really important. Um, Or they had... Uh, early menopause for whatever reason, let's say it was surgically induced. So uh, before the age of 45, 46, like that's, that's really young to um, let's say have a hysterectomy or oophorectomy, then we really need to consider the use of estrogen um, therapy, because that could be extremely beneficial for those patients, not necessarily just for symptoms, but for their longevity. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that is what I'm also talking to my patients about is that it can help, of course, with symptoms, but sometimes we need to look a little bit deeper, deeper into the longevity piece. Um, One thing I will say is that with the surgical menopause, so let's say it was under the age of 46, we know that uh, the risk of dementia can increase by 70% in these women. Right. So estrogen therapy, if it's initiated at the time of surgical menopause or within a few years of that, that can be extremely protective for cognitive mm. decline, even 30 years down the road. And so, when you're saying surgical menopause, just for audience, you're meaning like hysterectomies. Exactly. Like exactly. I just yeah. want to make and, layman's terms for people listening. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, exactly. Is that because, full and partial? Um, so yeah, if they have the full hysterectomy, refractomy, of course, um, Specifically for the study that showed the 70% increase, I'm not exactly sure if it was for um, full or partial, but even if they've had a hysterectomy and only had uh, the ovaries left, they're still at increased risk if if it's before the age of 46. Yeah. Mm. That's wild, the dementia. That's a big jump in percentage. It is. It's massive. And again... You, it's not something you'll notice right away, right? Maybe only until they're 60 or 65. And then that's when we can really see that uh, cognitive decline. So just something to keep in mind that mm-hmm. hormone therapy can also be for the support, you know, later on. Now, in terms of just while we're on the topic of cognition and things like dementia and Alzheimer's, because I know that's something that really um, women are really 
just scared of, right? Like, especially with brain fog, if they start, you know, forgetting their keys, like where they put their keys, they forget, they go to the grocery store and they forget someone's name um, and they start to worry. Does that predict their, you know, future Alzheimer's risk or dementia risk? Um, What I want to say about that is all women, of course, transition through menopause, but most women do not develop dementia. Okay. So that brain fog that women experience during that transition is a result of those hormonal fluctuations. But what we see is that it should actually revert um, back to premenopausal level, premenopausal levels once you've been through the menopause transition. Mm. So it should revert back. It's I always say to patients, doesn't mean we don't use support. Actually, that's where I will use more herbal support for brain like cognition because we do not have good research in using hormone therapy to for cognitive changes at menopause. Mm. So I'm talking when I said using it for that. Um, you know, prevention of dementia, that's really if you, you know, went into menopause before the age of 45 or 46. But let's say average age of menopause is 51, 52 in North America. For that situation, we wouldn't initiate hormone therapy just to sort of prevent cognitive changes. We don't have good data. Um, And I can put that into context when we're looking at the number needed to treat. Um, So for people who don't know NNT number needed to treat, basically what that means is you're looking at the number um, how many people do you need to treat for one person to benefit, right? In, in lay terms, that's what that means. A perfect number to needed to treat would be one, right? So for every one person that you give the intervention to, one person would benefit. That would be in a perfect world. For um, cognition, for like the prevention of Alzheimer's and dementia, the number needed to treat is 2,004. So literally... 2004 women, we need to take it for one woman to benefit on, you know, preventing future Alzheimer's cognition. So that's where uh, I put that into context for my patients. And I talk a lot about nutrition and exercise and sleep and, you know, brain support. That's where all of that can really, I think, play a bigger role than hormone therapy. Okay. Is there a final myth that you would like to debunk about hormonal therapy for our audience? I think we've covered Um, a few. Yeah. I think the final one that I commonly hear is hormone therapy causes weight gain. Um, So Mm. what we currently see with that is that hormone therapy is actually weight neutral. We don't see um, it impacting weight gain. Now, where it actually can help with uh, weight loss for patients is if patients are sleeping better, their mood is better, that's mm. going to help them, you know, do the things they need to do to help their weight. So they they are more inclined to exercise, move their bodies and eat well, those kinds of things. So that's a big myth. A lot of people actually, women fear going on hormone therapy for weight gain. And that's not what we see in the research. If anything, it would help indirectly because it's helping them feel better, sleep better, all those things that we know are really positive for weight gain. Do you treatment. think that's like stemming from the fact that when people take an oral contraceptive during like their their fertile years, there can be changes like in mood, in weight and stuff. Yeah, so I think people might associate mm-hmm. that because that is also considered, you know, uh, you know, hormones, you know, synthetic hormones to like manage PMS or, or as a contraceptive. But people right. do like I have clients who come to me like I took this birth control or a birth control pill and I blew up or I took this pill and my mood right. got wild. So I wonder if that maybe potentially of, I wonder yeah. if there's a bit of a bridge there as to why people assume that um, um, hormone replacement theory during menopause might cause the same things. 
Yeah, potentially. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there are different estrogens too, right? So and just, I think that's a good yeah. clarifying point. Clarifying point. Yeah. yeah, they're totally yeah. different. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diana, is there any last sentiments that you want to leave with our audience that people who are approaching this stage of um, of their life um, as biological females can begin to understand or appreciate so mm-hmm. that they can move through this with a, a smoother transition? Yeah, I think that my my last message is I truly believe that women can transition through this period with ease. I really do believe that. I really don't think it's something that you need to dread of this time. And I think I can understand why women dread this period of time when you look at societal messaging, right? Even mm-hmm. if you type in menopause on Google. It's like women miserable and fanning themselves and really not having a great time. And I think we can change that narrative for women to let them know that there is support. And if they don't feel heard by their family doctor, their general practitioner to really seek that extra support, look for someone who works in this area with women, because honestly, there's so much we can do to help women. And it wasn't even until I was being trained in this area that I, it actually blew my mind how much mm-hmm. we can do to support women. So I think that's my, my main message is if you haven't felt heard, I'm really sorry to hear that. And I also want you to know that there is a different way. There is something that can be done about it to not only help your symptoms now, but like look at that longevity piece. So 20, 30, 40 years from now um, to really support your health then. Because again, women are living now a third of their life post-menopause, right? With how life expectancy has increased, that's still a third of your life that can still be some of the best years. Love that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I hope that like, spark some fire under people to not feel so deflated by this period of time in their lives. And I think it should be something celebrated just like other periods of time. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like people seem to like dread their periods or hide away from that or whatever. And I feel like these aspects of being women are really poignant periods of our, of, 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 I don't know, for lack of better phrasing and sounding like super witchy is like, it's part of our power. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we need to start embracing that more. Mm-hmm. So I love that you came in and gave this insights. And frankly, I learned a lot from you too. So I really appreciate you coming yeah, on the show. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. I really loved our time together.